0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm really interested today to be interviewing Dr. Simon Robry about his book titled Four Shades of Grey, the Amazon Kindle platform, published in 2022 by MIT Press. And it's really the first book-length analysis of Amazon Kindle, um, and looks from a bunch of different angles at the technological side the bibliographical side the social impact on publishing Um, and it's a really quite an interesting book because kindles are something a lot of us are very familiar with but maybe don't really think about kind of the processes that led them to be what they are today how they function both in terms of hardware and software the number of ways in which i've now learnt from this book they're quite innovative Um, so i'm really excited to be speaking to dr simon rubbery today welcome to the podcast
1: Thank you, Miranda. I'm excited to talk to you about this book.
0: Wonderful. Um, Could you please start us off by introducing yourself, your academic background, and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Of course. Um, So I have uh, had a kind of long history of thinking about the the Kindle that dates back to when I was completing my PhD. So I've always wandered around various academic disciplines I started off taking a course in maths and uh, film studies and decided that combination wasn't particularly good for me and um, dropped out and started doing English literature and languages. And my interest moved from thinking about reading books themselves to the material objects. And this was around about the time that the first Kindle came out. So I started my um, final undergraduate in 2007, and just starting to use the device and play around with it became an increasingly important part of my PhD in English literature. And this interest then led to me pivoting to looking at publishing studies in general. So my first academic job after completing my PhD in 2014 was in digital media and publishing at the University of Stirling. And that was a really useful mix for thinking about this book because the disciplines of digital media and publishing studies don't necessarily talk together that much. But this, the Kindle was a really interesting opportunity to think about how do these two disciplines interact and how is the book changing in the digital age? So that allowed me to kind of form the ideas of this book. And then last uh, August, I moved to ucl and the center of publishing there which again sits in this interesting context in the department of information studies so really thinking about how publishing interacts with all these other elements so it was a move from thinking about how do we read books and how do we interpret these books to actually how is digital media changing what the book is like And when I came to look for any other articles or books, nobody else had written about this in great length. And I always thought, okay, next year something will be published. But that next year publication never came out. So I decided to write it myself. And almost a decade later, it's out.
0: Brilliant. Uh, Thank you for explaining that. I think it really does speak to a lot of the strengths of the book, that you have gone through a number of different disciplines and sort of thought about how they do and don't talk to each other. Um, it, I think, kind of gives a very sort of holistic view of the Kindle in a way, um, which I personally found really interesting. Um, so I want to kind of go through some of the highlights of the book or some of the kind of main pieces. And as I mentioned in the introduction, and you've kind of hinted out there with your going to different places and looking at it from different lenses, there's a number of aspects to the Kindle, hardware, software, impact. So I kind of want to start with the hardware. Um, I had not really realized how innovative the Kindle's hardware is, as well as its software. Um, And I hadn't quite realized how unique the electronic paper was. Can you maybe explain to us what some of these key innovations in the physical object of the Kindle and how it works are?
1: Yes. So the... The electronic paper is kind of a great encapsulation of how the Kindle was successful from the perspective of hardware, because despite Amazon's attempts to kind of restructure the narrative around eBooks and claim that nobody had ever created an e-reader or had thought about eBooks before the Kindle's launch, there had been many other attempts, but they weren't that successful. And one of the reasons was, it's very difficult to read on a, a screen. In fact, there's lots of research that suggests that the screen reading is less appropriate for deep engagement than print. But a lot of those date back to early screens. So even these days, something like a, a flat screen can be quite difficult to read from. But if we're thinking back to the late 90s, early 2000s, cathode ray screen, tube screens, These big bulbous monitors that you might remember are very difficult to read on for various reasons. Electronic paper was the opposite. So CRT, cathode ray tube screens, refresh multiple times. They're designed for um, kind of watching moving images. So TV, films, these sorts of things. Conversely, the idea behind electronic paper suggests that What if we imprint an image onto a screen and then don't refresh that until the reader needs that material to change? So keep it static, ensure that you don't need any lights to illuminate what the text is, and then you just go from there and create something that feels more like paper. And then in the advertising, you can claim that this is a lot more natural, even though paper is a very highly refined technology. And one of the interesting things about electronic paper that reflects this broader ecosystem of how Amazon built the Kindle was it's a very old technology, dates back to the 1970s. And there were two very early implementations of electronic paper. One was to use it in early computer systems that never took off. The other was for electronic advertising, but it's interesting that the people that developed this technology did not think about how it could be used for book style reading and it lay dormant for a very long time and then there were licensing issues so there was a legal delay to allowing people to use electronic paper screens this was all resolved in 2006 and then the kindle comes out the following year and just as with the iphone there's this idea that innovation doesn't just come from this one piece of technology, but from the ways in which lots of different technologies are combined into something far more um, powerful than its individual elements. So the electronic paper works in terms of a low power, low refresh screen, where essentially you just create a static image and it stays there for as long as you need it. This was then combined with lithium-ion batteries, so this idea of a rechargeable battery, that again, you just take a charge every now and again, and you don't need to refresh and recharge your device very often. So in the initial advertising that Amazon put out about the Kindle, they talked a lot about this idea of you only need to charge it once a month. And if you compare that to smartphones, so the early iPhone at that time, that was a lot more advantageous than saying you get a day's worth of charge from it. So there was nothing that was truly new to the technology industry. But all of these things combined, particularly from a consumer perspective, felt far more innovative and created something that had a real buzz about it in 2007.
0: That's really interesting, especially about kind of how the context of it, the timing of it meant that it wasn't just a technical innovation. It also had like quite obvious marketing benefits. Um, and so is that, can you kind of tell us a little bit more about that? Like the, obviously the iPad or the iPhone is happening kind of at the same time. There's this whole idea of like, wait, what do we do with all this new technology? You sort of spoken about the studies about reading on screens. Um, what other ways was kind of the Kindle and the rise of the Kindle impacted or influenced by what else was happening in this particular period?
1: Well, as as a kind of technological aside and and marketing, um, as a roundabout way of getting to your your question, there's a very interesting early video for the Kindle One where they show it bouncing. And there was this idea of it being far more sturdy than other devices. So early iPads, early iPhones break on, on contact. And this turned out not to be true. I remember my first Kindle, it broke because some liquid got into the, the control panel. So there was this, this amount of hype in terms of what was going on, but it was seen to be very different to the previous technologies at the time. So early ebooks, if we can claim things, between, let's say, 1998 and 2007 were um, this early period. They, they were very basic in terms of their, their functionality. They didn't look particularly interesting. And the, the industry had largely um, kind of forgotten about it and brushed it under the table because there was a heavy amount of investment in the early 2000s and a lot of hype about the potential for this new market. And this whole generation from 98 to 2002, had essentially dried up and never lived up to the the hype. And one of the the weird kind of historical facts around this is two of the most prominent e-readers from the early 2000s ended up being bought by Gemstar, who were a TV box set provider. So a company who made something like a Sky TV Box set, which seems like an odd way of, of fizzling out. This company probably bought the technology for something entirely different. So this completely disrupted the market, but only because of the marketing. So if you look at this idea of firsts at any particular time in history, um, often people say first depends on what you classify as the technology that you're, you're looking at. But in terms of ebooks, an interesting quirk that demonstrates what was going on at this time was Sony released an ebook reader with an electronic paper screen. I think it was two years beforehand in Japan, one, two years beforehand. And this again has been almost entirely erased from history just because of the impact that the Kindle had, that within the North American and UK and continental European understanding of ebooks. It just seems as though there was nothing before the Kindle, and then the Kindle came out, and that was purely to do with Amazon's marketing and the fact that they said, look at how new this is, look at how different it is from technology um, of the time. And one of the ways they did this was through always referring back to the book rather than other technology. So the first Kindle really looks like a book. It has a wedge-shaped design, And the idea of that was as if you were turning the page of a book to the other side to then read that content more effectively. And that's one of the problems with this marketing, that often when you market things in this way, there's this kind of bibliophilia that exists where you shouldn't break the spine of a book. So the way that Amazon said, look, this looks just like a book that you've broken the spine of that could turn some people off the idea of the the Kindle. So there's some very confused early marketing in terms of this that really demonstrates both. It's something new and different from this early failed um, kind of design of e-books, but it also is very much like paper and print. So it has a far longer history than just a brand new technology that only developed a few years ago.
0: And why were they trying to make this claim so much? Was it to differentiate with other new tech that was coming at the time? Like what was, it does sound quite confused. So why were they trying to sort of have it both ways? Um,
1: I'm not really sure why, why it took this particular approach. Uh, one of the, the ways in which they kind of demonstrated this complete break is that they shut down the ebook store that they had been running beforehand. So they were very invested in the, the late 1990s through to the, the mid 2000s in selling ebooks in small numbers. And Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, gives an interview where he talks about that and says the market wasn't big enough, the market wasn't there. And these other e-readers just didn't have the level of investment to ensure that they were sustainable. So a lot of it was just a marketing blitz that says, we need to make this work. This is our first bit of hardware. So if you think about Amazon in 2007, they did not have an Alexa range. They did not have um, the Fire tablets or any of the other hardware elements that we assume. This was very much a new industry, and just saying they're disruptive in all these various ways was very important for demonstrating this was something new for the company, but always playing back to that idea that Amazon are a retailer, and particularly their history as a a book retailer. So this is something that Amazon do quite effectively, um, particularly when thinking about publishing. They're always known for books, but they work in all sorts of different places. And their most profitable business lines aren't to do with books anymore. They're to do with servers and other sorts of things. So there is this real tension between Amazon, the public-facing company, and Amazon, the, the private corporation who are working in various different things, that the Kindle represented a real shift from one era, the idea of Amazon as a bookseller, to this idea of Amazon as an infrastructure. And the Kindle wasn't entirely responsible for that, but it was an important part of making that shift and ensuring that they're the company that they are today, which I would argue is equally all over the place in terms of what's their priority, what are they saying and they're doing publicly, and what are they doing privately.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, I do kind of want to move on to this idea of kind of the, the interlacing between Kindle and the wider Amazon and kind of talk about what you just mentioned, the idea of Amazon was initially sort of focused on books, bookseller. That's what they did a lot of. Um, and one thing that was really interesting in your book was how in this particular phase and emphasis of Amazon's life, uh, they used the existing ISBN system that demarcates essentially an identifier number for every book Um, But they also massively expanded that system and that that expansion had some pretty direct implications for Kindle later on. Can you tell us a bit more about kind of what they did, why and the impact it had?
1: So let's start by thinking about the history of Amazon and why they chose the, the book trait. There's a lot of romanticism and nostalgia around publishing and this idea of it not often being the most forward-thinking, technologically-driven industry. But ISBNs are one of the ways in which books kind of were ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. That they date back to the 1960s, and they were unparalleled in other forms of media. So this idea of being able to identify a specific edition of a book was very novel in a way that CDs didn't have the same kind of classification. And this is then part of why Amazon chose books. There are lots of other reasons. So the idea that books are easy to send in the post, um, there are warehouse advantages in the US at least. So Bezos chose Washington for his headquarters because it was near one of the major book distributors. But the ISBN standard was international and it allowed you to pick and choose um, books in a very specific way with specific information about where that book came from, so which language region it came from, um, which publisher it came from, and all of this extra information that meant that this was a very useful standard for discovering books. And one of the sleights of hand that Bezos did in those early days of Amazon was saying that he could access any book that was in print. One of the ways that you could do this was through data brokers such as Nielsen in the US. who essentially said, these are a list of books in print, and then you can order those books from a warehouse. And this standard was very useful for just generating lots of web pages and records that said, we can get you these books within a week, let's say. This is very similar to a brick-and-mortar bookshop. So if you go into, let's say, Waterstones or Barnes & Noble, you can go to the counter and ask them to reserve the book. And they were using the same database and using the same ISBN standard, but they were keeping that information private, while the Amazon website said, here's a list of books that were in print. We're not going to gatekeep this information. And it was that rigorous standardization that Amazon was exploiting in the way that other companies worked at that time. And one of the challenges of this was then you start off creating a business that's for books and you have the ISBN standard. That's nice and easy to replicate. But once you start to move into other product lines, so CDs was an early example of this, but then this idea of the everything store now, it becomes far more difficult to say, we're going to use the same Mm. standard. Their solution to this was to come up with the Amazon standard identifier number or ASIN. And ASIN's just like one of the two ISBN standards has 10 digits in it. And this allowed them through this um, kind of comparative way of taking something that's 10 digits and then expanding the range of uh, characters that could be used to include letters, allowed them to say, okay, this, this book has this 10 digit number, and then the CD can have a very similar identifier. This really worked up until the point that they started to Publish ebooks and distribute ebooks because ebooks from other bookstores use ISBN still. They have a separate eISBN. So if you open a book to the copyright page, you can probably see an example of here's what the print ISBN is, here's the hardcover ISBN, and here's the eISBN. And those identify the same books in different formats. Amazon chose to use um, their ASINs instead. So you end up with something that looks like a non-book, but it's an e-book edition of something, which starts to confuse um, kind of the system from a metadata perspective. But it does something that's a trademark of Amazon, which is to keep things within its own system, even if it would make more sense to have something that op- would operate within other companies' systems. And one of the odd things that I found out while researching this book is that other kind of entities within the Amazon universe, uh, if you can kind of talk about it in that way, also have ASINs. So every user, so everyone who buys reviews uses Amazon, has their own ASIN. And also every author. So authors have product pages on Amazon that say, these are the books that are related to this author. These all use the same 10 character ASINs. And this makes it very difficult from a technical perspective to understand if something is a book, a person, an author. And they have expanded this, actually. So some of the ASINs for authors and users are slightly longer than 10 characters. But it all collapses in terms of a metadata standard. Um, So this idea of describing data using other data in a very awkward manner, which protects Amazon from external researchers because things aren't clearly separated in the way that you would have ISBN for books and then a separate standard for identifying authors. So one of the things they do very well is keep things in-house and keep things difficult to reverse engineer. And that has always been one of the running challenges in terms of writing this book is staying one step behind where Amazon are in terms of how do they represent people, books, and all these sorts of things, rather than being several steps behind because I'm always trying to chase what the latest development is. So they've cleverly taken this public standard, taken the competitive advantage of other companies, and then created their own proprietary standard that's very close to that standard, and used that as a way to gain further competitive advantage. So these are kind of the hallmarks of Amazon across different um, product lines and services.
0: Well, in fact, it sounds quite similar to um, what you describe in the book around the file format of individual kindle files so like the literal i guess software that you buy that becomes the book um also is similar to other ebook file formats but is specific to amazon has kind of remained that way um and seems quite difficult to change or reverse engineer um even though it has led to user complaints and lack of consistency in the user experience. So can you maybe tell us about kind of, it sounds like it's the same sort of thing looking at the actual Kindle files. Is that right?
1: Yes. And um, this has come up recently in in an article um, that I think Mashable published that said, finally, Kindles will be able to read EPUB. Which is the industry standard. So, every other ebook platform other than um, the Kindle uses EPUB, and it's based on open file formats that people understand. So, very similar to a web page, it uses HTML, CSS, all of these sorts of uh, formats that are well documented and easy to create content for. Amazon don't want to go down that particular route and have always had their proprietary formats. And as as I said earlier, this was their first foray into creating hardware. And this is a very hard pivot for a company to make. And one of the ways that they um, kind of developed this more quickly and more fluidly was to acquire other companies. So they acquired a company, uh, the French company called Pocket. Back in 2004, um, Mobi Pocket was one of the many competing standards before EPUB came out. So around the mid-2000s, EPUB was developed and agreed on by technology companies, publishing companies, notably not Amazon, as a more open format. But before then, there were essentially lots of different competing formats, and every ebook reading software had its own requirement, which as you could understand is a nightmare for a publisher who then has to create 20 different copies of the same title for each individual platform. EPUB solved that problem around the mid-2000s. Unfortunately, Amazon were already thinking about the development of the Kindle earlier. So you could say 2004 was one of the earliest years they were thinking about it, and that's why they acquired MobiPocket. And as a very secretive company, the acquisition was primarily driven by their true desire, which was to create an ebook reader, but also a public facing response for why they're acquiring that. So Moby Pocket was a very popular ebook store as well that used this proprietary format. And this proprietary format has a longer, weirder history. And in my chapter on format in the book, I. I talk about this in terms of a kind of geological excavation. You take the contemporary Kindle file format and you chip away and you dig the layers back. And once you've got to the core, you have something that is derived from what's called PRC. So, PRC is a very old, archaic file format for um, the palm, palm Top series. And it was initially designed to allow database entries to move from one, um, for one system to this portable system and reduce the size of it. And this is one of many examples within the history of eBooks where people haven't had the relevant tools to create or to read what they want on, on screen. So they make do with what they can Uh, Two of the weirdest examples I came across from this era in terms of this, people would code Game Boy cartridges to read public domain texts. So there are files that you can download on the internet that allow you to read Moby Dick on a Game Boy. And the, the Microsoft file format was developed from help files because people would edit help files to, again, probably have Moby Dick on it. So there's this long history of people finding things and turning them into ebook platforms. So that's where Moby comes from. It was users who created their own materials and then it got developed by Moby. They created a standard that was based upon that. Amazon bought that and then never wanted to redevelop um, everything from scratch. Because one of the real problems with standards is once you have that initial standard, it's very difficult to then completely do a 180 and change everything that you're doing. So you end up with this very archaic file format that can't do very much. And things have changed for the better, but some of those early issues remain. So to take one example that I talk about in the, the format chapter, um, there are issues with accessibility of materials that aren't in the English language. Because when you're developing a closed system, you need to think about all possible use cases. One of the decisions that Amazon made to make their file format smaller in terms of how much room it took up on the device was to restrict the characters that you could display on the screen to a alphabet that's known as Latin 1. And Latin 1 says anything from A to Z in both lower and uppercase numbers and some punctuation marks are all the characters that we can render on the screen. This had several key failing points in terms of internationalization. So I have a screenshot um, in the book that shows a complete page of Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky that you can't see any of the Russian text because there's just not the way of showing what that looks like because of this purposeful choice in the file format that says we don't want to display non-English characters. But this also has a consequence in books that use more playful typography. So one of my um, one of the fun things I did when researching this book was find ebooks that were broken. And a good example of this that I don't think made it to the final cut of this chapter was a book by Keith Houston called Shady Characters. And he's talking about a lot of non-standard print-based typographic characters, so things that we can see as a precursor to emoji. Um, there's a chapter dedicated to Sarcasm tags and sarcasm symbols are early symbols. There's another chapter dedicated to the, the manicule, so the pointing finger that you see in early print and manuscript culture. And one of the, the problems for the Kindle is in the print version, this and in other um, ebook platforms, this is part of the main text. So it's not an image. This is a typographical symbol. And within HTML, you would use the Unicode Consortium's code for that particular typographic symbol. So an emoji, for example, you have a number that the HTML file renderer will then show this is what this particular symbol should look like. So when you're creating a Kindle version of this text, um, shady characters, they don't have those particular typographic symbols as part of the file format. So then you include pictures instead. If you look at an early version of this book, I believe it's been corrected since. There are images of these manicules, so the pointing fingers, in the text. This then causes all sorts of accessibility issues if you don't have the same background, for example, as the original file. If you increase the size of the font, the image does not scale with that. And anything to do with text-to-speech. So if someone doesn't um, have perfect eyesight and needs help by a AI-driven um, mm-hmm. kind of narrator, then it doesn't read out that particular text properly because it's an image rather than text. So some of these early workarounds and the fact that it has this longer history of being a very archaic file format have really led to limitations. Fortunately, we're in the 15th year of the Kindle now and the more contemporary devices are far more effective in terms of this. So I've recently bought a um, Kindle Oasis, which is one of the luxury um, Kindles and it is a far better experience than these early versions. One of the things that complicates Amazon's file formats is that when we think about books and texts. We don't see this as computationally difficult. And then when um, when we think about phones and this idea of planned obsolescence, there's it's easier to sell the idea that your phone is out of date and Apple don't want to support it. People don't think about Kindles and um, e-readers in the same way because they think text is text. It's easy to deal with. But because people still want to use their Kindles from 15 years ago, and some of the most popular on the resellers market are from 2009 because they created these very big Kindles that then they never sold uh, after that, you get people who want support for 15 year old devices, which is almost unheard of in this particular kind of era of planned obsolescence. And that raises problems for kind of file formats, because Amazon still need to support these old file formats that people rightly want to use, but they also want to drive things forward. So there's this real tension in this file format that it's not just Amazon not making a proper job of it. It is also we need to make sure that everybody is catered for and nobody is annoyed that their 15-year-old device doesn't work anymore.
0: Fascinating. Thank you for kind of explaining the different sides of that. Um, I admit I am one of those people that still uses my e-reader that is over 10 years old. Um, I know that Apple is not going to support it. And so I treat it very, very, very carefully. Um, But it will die. And I will be sad. So I can understand that Amazon is aware that there are probably lots and lots and lots of people like that with Kindles. Um, And so kind of speaking about the sort of wider idea, the wider influence of the Kindle, um, now that you've so helpfully explained to us the sort of hardware and software elements that make it so interesting, um, how has Kindle engaged with or expanded kind of traditional publishing and publishers and how they think of sort of a front list of like immediate new shiny books and a backlist of kind of everything else they've got? How has Kindle impacted publishing?
1: This is a, I have a very contentious response to this from a kind of publishing perspective. That I think the, the engagement has largely um, divided and, and forked, particularly in the last um, five or so years, where there was a lot of excitement around the potential for the front list and backlist on e-readers, um, not just the, the Kindle. But now there's this grander narrative of um, people don't want to read ebooks anymore and audiobooks are the new exciting thing that gain investment but if we look at the front list in terms of this it's actually demonstrated that there are markets that traditional print-based publishers aren't catering for as much as the audience wants that and Interestingly enough, these are genres that are well represented in print, so in terms of front list, you see the development of Kindle Direct Publishing, and this has had a great impact on the industry, the idea that um, authors can publish material directly to the Kindle rather than going to a traditional um, publisher, although there are lots of publishing services that have replaced that. Freelance editors, freelance marketers, or authors are taking on the role of publishers in various ways. So, this has changed the idea of the front list because now you get an accurate view of just how big some of these markets for new shiny books are. And romance, one of those print based genres that was very important to publishers, there's a far greater market for that digitally than there ever was in print, which is amazing because there was a massive market for that in print and this really shows the kind of divergence between the markets because this front list the front list still works with a print first model so what books will sell the most print copies because that's our first business model and then this divergent market has demonstrated these are the sorts of books that people read and read in great quantities And this has become a real issue in terms of digital publishing more broadly because companies, um, subscription companies, so this service script who allow you to pay a certain amount of uh, money per month to then receive unlimited content, had to restrict the amount of romance fiction that users could engage with because they were reading far too much and it was causing them um, too much of a profit loss from it. So, from a frontless perspective, there's a real divergence between the traditional print based industry and the, the new digital um, kind of platforms. And a, a kind of limiting factor of that has also been this idea that um, the price of books needs to be higher than it is. And there are discussions in the industry around is the recommended retail price of a new title sufficient given increase in supply chain costs and everything like that. But from an ebook perspective, there's this real challenge of value proposition where you can buy an app, you can buy a cheap game for um, five, 10 pounds at very max from an app store, while a, a new book in hardcover might be 20, 30 pounds. So how do you ensure that you are getting enough people to buy your book? And the self-publishers just can produce a book a month and there's almost this kind of algorithmic appetite for producing as much content as possible and then just getting consistent reader readers to buy a book a month for 99p. That works for self-published authors, but for big brand names, they still need to be charging... Um, in in the American context, $30, while initially the Kindle, you could buy a bestseller, a a front list title for $10. And this was really unsustainable for the industry, which is why they chose to prioritize print. So in terms of the front list, from a traditional perspective, it hasn't changed that much, but it's demonstrated the shape of the market that can be exploited. The backlist, so the old titles, which is one of the benefit of traditional publishers. So, if you take Penguin, they've been around for around about hundred years at this point. They have a vast backlist of titles that are still protected by copyright. That potentially they could sell for ninety nine p up to five pounds as an ebook. That has not happened, unfortunately, um, and this is primarily due to the costs. So, it's very difficult to create a digital ebook version of something that was initially made in print using traditional techniques. So something from the 1930s, 1940s, so on. Unless it was very popular, you then need to pay for a two-part process to get that as text digitally, and there's further costs after that. So unlike a, a film where there are streamlined ways of taking a DVD, taking a VHS and making a digital copy, there is no way for a computer to read text without first taking a photo of it. And then you need to correct that process. So there's a lot of work that goes into creating high quality ebook editions. And often that means that publishers don't put in the effort. So you can see there's a button on the Amazon website that says, this is a low quality ebook and then the publisher has to correct that. So the backlist really didn't take off in the way that I was expecting because of the the high labor costs and also the fact that you couldn't sell it for very much and subscription models such as Netflix haven't taken off. And one of the ways that I um, researched this for the book was through looking at 1989 as a particular year and using a resource called the British National Bibliography that the British Library maintained that says, this is every book that was published in the UK, and it provides a ISBN for all of them. And I painstakingly went through every title by hand, individually, and looked at if they were available for the Kindle, if they're available in any kind of digital edition, and found that in 2018, when I conducted that research, that fewer than 10% of books published in 1989, which is fairly recent, weren't available for the Kindle, and most of them weren't available digitally online. That there are a lot of books that just don't exist in digital form, and this means that publishers can't exploit the backlist. And a lot of those titles in 1989. Would still be relevant because there was, for example, a lot of discussion around um, Soviet Union and the Cold War. So, there, if publishers could get the costs down, one way of easily pivoting would be what's in our backlist that we could put back as a cheap Kindle edition. But the market's just not there, and the economics aren't there, which is one of the great shames of the kind of contemporary book market
0: fascinating yeah thank you for explaining that um I think there I do remember initially with ebooks and kindles there were a lot of kind of old things out of copyright and it was like oh this is super cool and then I was like oh wait hang on a second like every second word is misspelled or smushed together or I can't read it it's blurry um so (laughs) thank you for explaining why that is true um so one of the other things in your book that Uh, again, I think speaks to this idea of a thing that many of us probably have come across in reading either on a Kindle device or through a Kindle app, but maybe never really thought about and certainly didn't do the painstaking research that you did, um, which is about the paratext, the social reading of books. And essentially what this literally means, or at least one example of it, is that when you're reading a Kindle book, you can highlight a bit and it will tell you if other people have highlighted it or you can read it and there'll be a little underline and it will kind of indicate that other people have found this sentence or this quote or this phrase to be something worth highlighting for whatever reason. Um, And this obviously is kind of a thing you could do with a physical book, but obviously not with like thousands of people all highlighting the same physical copy. Um, And you talk about this in the book, but you also talk about Kindle being kind of a platform, not just a device. And It kind of seems to me like these two things, this is one way that they come together. Kindle as a platform and then this like social element to what we can now do. Um, So I was kind of wondering if you could sort of tell us about this and sort of some of the things you found about what actually is happening with this sort of social engagement aspect of the Kindle.
1: Well, the... The annotations is one of the few constants that, it was the Kindle 2, I believe, that first had this kind of shared annotations system. But as I said, this was the, one of the only constant elements of it. And one of the, the interesting things that Amazon have done is constantly experiment with different forms of social reading, of different kinds of paratext more broadly, And as I I talk about in the the book, these come from two different ways. So you have automation as one way that we're very familiar with in terms of Amazon and social media platforms, and equally the user labor side of things and using that as a way of producing content. And as we were discussing earlier, one of the challenges for Amazon is that they're using this uh, proprietary technology to um, kind of have the basis of their ebook platform and as the the format. One of the challenges of creating ebooks is, for example, indexing or um, using an effective search engine. And these sorts of elements are difficult, they're expensive, and publishers are unlikely to want to do something entirely different just because you don't want to use the industry standard. So one of the things that Amazon were very keen on doing in terms of this social reading was allow people to discuss a book. So a company called Shelfari, um, running very much like Goodreads today, they allowed you to review books. But one of the things that Amazon added was this Wikipedia-style, tell us the synopsis of this book. Um, Tell us who this character is. Give us a bit of data and then they would slightly use that as part of the main interface. So then they could say, we have added value. In terms of indexes, they used automation. So they created this technology called X-Ray, that rather than having an index that was fully hyperlinked and allowed you to jump forwards and backwards, it just said, um, this is where a character appeared in a text and would highlight, in terms of a, a plain line, these are the parts of the text that that person appeared in. That worked great in certain contexts, but it can also spoil a particular book. So if a character appears in the first 20%, and then right again at the end, it indicates that they potentially didn't die or something similar. So they they just experimented with all these different elements, and um, I list a lot of these in, in the book and some of their their history. But the one that people remember, and uh, the most interesting, is this idea of the annotations that appear line by line. And my inspiration for this, um, Jordan Ellenberg was writing for Slate, I believe, and he came up with something called the Piketty Index. So Thomas Piketty's capital in the 20th century, 21st, 20th, twenty-first century, and um, a very long, I think it's about a thousand pages long, he looked at where the highlights appeared in these books and used that as a measure to see how far through particular books people had got, using the logic that most people don't highlight bits of books that they've not read. And in this chapter I, I looked at 800 books again using a lot of manual data collection rather than automation, because Amazon makes these sorts of things very difficult. It demonstrates that it's not quite that straightforward, that there's algorithmic mediation. So this idea of a thousand readers have highlighted um, this particular passage. Amazon have algorithms that, just as with other social media, dem- uh, kind of pick and choose particular things. And one of the ways that they algorithmically mediate those annotations, they don't necessarily pick the most popular annotations, or the, the most highlighted It's this vague term, popular, what counts as popular. And they tend to appear more towards the beginning of the book, because that's what the algorithm wants to present. And one potential reason for this is you can download a extract of the book, and it is always the opening section of it. So if you include highlights that say 2,000, 5,000 people have highlighted this, then people are more likely to buy it because they see that other users have engaged with that. So there's a lot of algorithmic mediation that means that this whole idea of exploring social reading that a lot of my Um, Kind of colleagues who look at digital reading platforms, it can often not give an accurate picture of what's going on. But there's a clear reason why Amazon have kept it for so long. And that's because it is engaging as opposed to some of the um, other things that they've included. And as a kind of um, follow up from what I've said in the book, I should be fair to Amazon and say that they have improved some of these systems. So, for example, in a recent um, ebook that I read, footnotes were actually a pop-up box that appeared down the bottom that just showed the particular footnote, unlike the old system where you would have a pop-up that showed the entire book rather than just the, the section that you were looking at. So if a footnote was short, you could see the next footnote. And the worst way that this functioned was the dictionary. So the early dictionary as a paratext. So you click on a a word that you don't know, and it shows the definition. If the definition was too short, it would show its context within that particular ebook, which demonstrated it wasn't a separate database. It was just an ebook that you looked at with a little preview section. So this whole use of paratext and social reading can really confuse readers. And one of the interesting things that I I found when looking at online discussions around ebooks, and there is a very enthusiastic community that does this, that the Indian Amazon had something called Kindle Lite. This was primarily developed for bandwidth of users, so they couldn't necessarily get the full downloaded version. It reduced the Kindle interface to the most important elements, and ended up essentially being two megabytes and the version of choice for connoisseurs who happened to download it because it removed all of this. So again, there's this tension between Amazon fitting into this Silicon Valley kind of hype cycle of we need to create something new each year, we need to add a new feature, and also readers just wanting to read their books um, so with these annotations, kind of like why why do you want to see what other people have highlighted? It might be a curiosity, but ultimately, what does it add to the reading experience? So there's this tension that kind of exemplifies a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of the public-facing side of things and the the private and the difference between what Amazon think people want and what at least the the dedicated users want.
0: Mm, yeah thank you for explaining that um I think it's a really interesting aspect and kind of uh, in the book you have a number of really interesting examples where you kind of demonstrate particular cases you already obviously talked us through one but there are a bunch in the book that show sort of different detailed aspects of it that's really interesting so thank you for giving us kind of an overview to this topic um so as we move towards the end of the interview I have kind of some big picture questions. Um, First off, something you write in, I believe, the conclusion or the end of the book, where you argue that the quote, the golden age of Kindle is over. Why?
1: This is something I I touched upon earlier in terms of industry interest. So certainly when the Kindle first came out, there was a lot of excitement around how this would disrupt the industry, how it would create new revenue models. And as we've spoken about, the potential for both front-list and back-list titles for publishers who weren't willing to invest enough money ended up fizzling out a lot of that interest. And this narrative of print books being better than e-books has come to dominate the trade section of the industry, at least. So there is this real nostalgia for print that after that initial excitement died out, at the same time, Amazon have expanded their, their interests. The Kindle isn't their only hardware. They, they are known for doing far more at this particular time. So it became less and less of a priority for Amazon to update the Kindle when they had other hardware, other services. Um, other media. So if you look at um, kind of what Jeff Bezos is is doing now in terms of his private acquisition of the Washington Post, and also things such as Amazon Studios and creating such properties as the Lord of the Rings TV show, it's no longer as interesting text. That text is just text to a lot of these people. It's not the most flashy, technologically driven um, kind of media format. And as Amazon have moved into these other types of media, they've stopped caring so much about the Kindle to the point that the 10th anniversary was very low-key. There wasn't any major celebration of it being 10 years since Amazon had completely disrupted the industry. I think there was a blog post by Amazon, and that was about it. So a lot of the interest has died out as the technology hasn't continued to develop and... Go in the directions where people thought so some people would have assumed at this point that we would have full color e-paper but that's far more technologically difficult than initially assumed so there's some disappointment in that um, it didn't necessarily play out in terms of developing as fast as other technological formats such as smartphones have in the last 15 years
0: That makes a lot of sense. There are a lot. Amazon's doing a lot. (laughs) So I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit more about something that has come up a few times already, which is essentially, how do you research this? Amazon keeps updating all of these different things. Um, They don't obviously keep records or archives in ways that we used to. We don't have necessarily boxes of documents and memos. And this is obviously all quite recent. So and you've already even mentioned a number of times the kind of difference between inside Amazon versus the public persona. So how do you research such a recent thing when updates and, oh, three versions ago, etc., like literally just gets wiped?
1: I, a lot of it was coming up with robust ways of documenting from what I could access. One of the things I was very keen on doing is not... Um, trying to conduct any interviews of Amazon or anything like that, just working with material evidence. And one of the best ways of doing that was just keeping old devices and seeing what I could access from those. So if a, a Kindle broke, downloading all the data from it and using that. So a lot of it was just trying to establish best practice. And one of, one of the things that I've done in an appendix is come up with some suggestions for a bibliographical approach to citing eBooks, because there are all sorts of issues around page numbers. And I talk about why page numbers in the eBook apps aren't reliable and ensuring that there's a way of appreciating that eBooks are their own thing. And they're not just a, a replica of print. So documenting some of that work in progress. A lot of this, as I've, I've said repeatedly, was done manually, even though it was on a large scale. So, making sure I was downloading um, every web page that I accessed, so I'd always have a record, where possible, going to the Internet Archive um, Wayback Machine and making sure that page was there. So, when this book was published, you could still get all the information that I had um, kind of half a decade earlier. So coming up with my own private archives, one of the challenges that comes from this is my source for the chapter on social reading was a web page that existed that documented um, a million different annotations that had been shared more than 10 times. It was just a list of what the book was, um, what the annotation was, how many people all sorts of um, useful information for the history of reading in the digital age. I managed to download the entirety of that before it completely disappeared. But one of the challenges from a research perspective is this idea of um, reproducible research and being able to share archives, but that's not data that I own and I could share it. So having a copy is, is okay but I can't then share this very valuable data source with everyone else. So these are the sorts of challenges that you get with this born digital type of research that even if you get the data, then allowing other people to use it and build upon it can be very difficult because of the legal and technical constraints of accessing it or sharing it or any of these sorts of
0: things. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think this is something a lot more of us are going to have to deal with um, in future. And it's really good to know that there are ways of dealing with it. And hopefully, um, you know, for example, you've come up with a way to have page number citations for ebooks. Brilliant. Maybe that's something you could share because I think more of us are going to need it. Um, but this is obviously a massive, massive project that you've undertaken. Um, not just in the answer you just gave, but all throughout the book, it's so clear um, how much depth and detail and sort of care you took to figure all this out. Um, but the book is done the book is now published, the book's now available. So what are you working on next?
1: So this this book um, I finished in 2018, and then it's taken a while to, to revise and get out. And then the interim period I have actually completed the second shorter book on Project Gutenberg. So going back to this idea of um, the first ebook distributor, and conducting a very similar analysis of Project Gutenberg and debunking some of those myths around what they're actually doing, where they were doing it, what sort of content does um, Project Gutenberg host? So I've spent a lot of time on that, but that is almost done as well now. So the next big big project um, is thinking about the importance of text in the history of computing. Because before you could transmit large images online and watch movies, text was the primary format other than the numbers. And there's this long history around that I think's worth unpacking because the history of computing for its early decades did depend on text. And then all of a sudden, you could view moving images, you could play music, and it completely changed things. And that history of text and its importance has been has been erased. So I think this will be the next decade-long project of it's, its very early stages, but teasing out what that looks like, what's the the hook and things like that. So I'm sort after having sworn off never writing a book again, I'm very excited to now having had that space to think about, okay, what is this big thing that I do over the long term or doing shorter projects in the meantime?
0: All right, fair enough. Well, I kind of do hope you will end up with another book because that sounds very interesting and maybe we could have you back to talk about it. Um, But while you go off and research what sounds like a massive project, listeners can read your um, book that we've been discussing in this episode, which as a reminder is titled Four Shades of Grey, the Amazon Kindle platform published by MIT Press in 2022. Dr. Simon Robry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Miranda.